Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to How We Evolve. What you're about to listen to is a conversation that honestly surprised me and touched me. It surprised me because I didn't expect him to respond positively to my invitation to come on this pod. It touched me because of the raw vulnerability, honesty, and wisdom he showed in this conversation. Here's a guy who has got a lot to lose, certainly a lot more than me, by being so open, and yet here he is doing so. There are very few men that I'd point to as being a role model for me, but where he is right now and based on this conversation, I think this person might just be one for me. Not because of his many successes, but because of his willingness to own up to his failures, to own his shit, and to keep learning and moving. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Professor Scott Galloway, host of the Prof G podcast and Pivot Pod, amongst other incredible experiences, and seemingly a genuinely good dude. Hey, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you, Ronan. So for everyone listening, um, Scott and I met a couple of years ago at the Code Conference uh, with Kara Swisher, where Mm -hmm. we talked about psychedelics and went deep on that conversation. And I've come close, I think, to convincing Scott to try a ketamine-assisted therapy session or a psychedelic-assisted therapy session. I haven't quite got him over the line yet, at least publicly disclosed as such. Um, But that's how we got this introduction. And the reason I reached out to Scott to talk about this particular conversation is because I was recently reading a Washington Post article in which Scott was quoted called Men Are Lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a pretty deep and thoughtful dive into the conversation around men, masculinity, toxic masculinity. And it's a conversation, Scott, just for your reference, that's actually very germane to me. Um, Mm -hmm. What you may not be aware of is that in March, Field Trip, which was the basis of our initial introduction, Mm -hmm. filed for creditor protection. Mm -hmm. And I left the company at that time. And since then, I've been kind of in the wilderness trying to explore what's next and not having a job, not having a direction, not having a sense of purpose right now, at least from Mm -hmm. a professional perspective, has brought to the surface a lot of, I think, some of the conversation that's going on in the broader context Mm -hmm. of being a male, masculinity, sense of purpose, being productive. Because when we talk about masculine energies, it's it's often referred to as the doing, the productivity, the that Mm -hmm. kind of work. Mm-hmm. And so I've been doing a deep dive on understanding that in myself and, and where, where I sit and where men sit in the world and, and how we can advance this conversation. So mm-hmm. first question I have for you is the conversations around men and masculinity. When did mm-hmm. this become of interest to you? What, what prompted you to start exploring this subject matter? You know, it was just data, just stumbling upon you just start seeing this overwhelming amount of data. I think we've done, I think as someone who considers themselves a progressive, I immediately go to empathy and the need for social intervention and programs and investment when I hear some of the still present, still very real obstacles that non-whites and women face. And increasingly I was seeing information like, okay, a, a man is four times as likely to commit suicide. I mean, we talk about a ho- we talk about the homeless problem, but it's really a homeless uh, male problem. Ninety percent of homeless right. are men. We talk about um, the police killing people, and we phrase it as you're three and a half times more likely to, um, if you're black, to be killed by a police officer, but you're exponentially more likely to be killed if you're a male. Police officers right. don't approach a car with their gun pulled when it's a woman, and some of that is because women are less violent. Uh, when two adolescents are sexually abused. Um, and by the way, they're both heinous crimes. Uh, but if a boy is sexually abused, um, he's 10 times more likely to kill himself later in life than when a girl is sexually abused. And again, it doesn't make any crime less heinous. But what it ends up is there's a lot of interesting research that all points to one, I thought, kind of pivotal moment that begins to guide us towards solutions. And that is boys are physically stronger but girls are mentally and emotionally stronger. When you look at single-parent households, uh, girls from single-parent households have similar outcomes in terms of uh, matriculating from college, income, healthy relationships, getting married, staying married. Uh, Boys have dramatically worse outcomes the moment there's no longer a male role model. 
and we we sort of pathologize masculinity. We just speak about it differently, right? We knew all the terrorists for 9-11 were male, but do we talk yeah. about the fact that all the firemen, that and it was firemen, it wasn't part people, the 300 plus firemen that died in the towers, they were all male. We don't talk about that. So it just, it, it strikes me that there's a, there is a level of misandry uh, that requires attention. And that um, I think about, one, I relate to, to young men who are struggling because I was one of them and I still struggle. Right. And I find that some of the things that get in the way of me solving those problems are sort of what I kind of, my gag reflex around what, what behaviors I'm supposed to, or sort of emotions I'm supposed to reflect or not reflect in order to reinforce this notion of kind of masculinity, which is both good and bad. So I've just been thinking a lot about uh, how we can help young men at this pivotal moment where they lose a male role model, because right. I think it's not a zero sum game. I think advocacy is a wonderful thing. And the conversation has evolved so much in a productive way, because now it's more about people recognize compassion is not a zero sum game, that civil rights didn't hurt yeah. white people and um, gay marriage didn't hurt heteronormative marriage and advocating for young men and recognizing the real challenges they face in terms of an educational system that's biased against them. Boys are twice as likely to be suspended for the exact same behavior. Uh, the legal system, you know, blacks are 10%, get 10% longer sentences, but on a crime behavior adjusted basis, exact same crime, males get 60% longer jail terms. 90% of the time they don't get custody of their kids. And if you were to talk about a path to suicide and suicide has exploded among teen girls because of social media, but it's also gone up among young men and middle-aged men who are three to four times more likely to kill themselves. If you were to try and identify the most common path, and I'll, I'll stop talking in a second, but no, it's great. It's um, two thirds to 80% of all divorce filings are initiated by women. And oftentimes there's financial strain involved. The, the, the man has lost his job, had some sort of mental breakdown, has had a business fail. And then in court, uh, the man loses his kids. So you have financial strain, a loss of your relationship, a loss of your kids. And just there's just some staggeringly disturbing research from psychologists and psychiatrists who, by the way, are 90% clinical psychologists, 90% women, um, have found that a lot of men who kill themselves the day before they kill themselves, they don't suffer from mental illness. They are doing the math. And they're like, I'm mm -hmm. fucked. I'm really, I'm truly, I've lost my kids. I've lost my livelihood. I've lost the most important relationship in my life. Suicide is, is kind of a viable option. And you, you read this and it just rattles you to the core. And so I just been thinking a lot about how do we create a productive conversation? Because, because on the left, we weren't having an honest conversation about it. That void got filled with what I would describe as some very unproductive voices that saw masculinity as some weird attempt to take back power from women or to treat them more like property or to embrace this kind of weird uh, like form of masculinity. So I, I'm really kind of heartened by Richard Reeves' book, A Boys uh, to Men, and just some of the more productive conversation. Even some feminists have reached out to me and said, this is a conversation we need to have because at the end of the day, the most important thing in our lives is establishing long and meaningful relationships deep and meaningful relationships. And we aren't creating enough young men who are capable of establishing those deep and meaningful relationships, both through their own emotional well-being, their economic viability, and quite frankly, developing the skills such that they are attracted to women such that they can find someone to establish mm -hmm. a partnership with. So I, I feel like I've stumbled into something. I relate to young men. I think the data is just overwhelming. I think the timing for a more productive conversation is there. But I told you I was going to stop talking. I'm, I'm lying. It's okay. Just, just turning this back to Ronan, you're starting a company that was totally this different, visionary, crazy company, and then, quote unquote, it fails. I've started nine businesses. I think realistically, five or six have failed. Right. And <laughs> so how do you know you're going to be successful? When you look back on this, it's like, yeah, I did crazy shit, and it didn't work, and then I went on to the next thing. And the blessing about Field Trip, that was the name of the business? Or is yep. the name of the business? So I spent 11 years building a company called Red Envelope. And I doubled down on it, put more money into it, got in a war with the board, really just kept doubling down. 
And then in 2008, through a mix of things, a longshoreman strike, our ship ended up on a cargo ship 60 miles offshore, a software glitch. We started spitting out labels and sending things to the wrong address around the holidays, which is not a great oh, business. And then a Wells Fargo analyst pulling our credit line because I think she saw the credit crisis coming. We were out of business. So what you have to realize or what I, what, what I think you should realize is that there's nothing better than success. That's by far the best thing. But uh, uh, number two, and it clearly best number three, is failing fairly fast. It took me 11 years to fail at Red Envelope. And that was the worst thing about it. I had other, I had an e-commerce incubator backed by Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, you know, Maveron, Howard. I mean, all the winners lined up in 1999. It went out of business in six months. Like the dot bomb happened. No room for an e-commerce incubator in New York. Shut it down. That was a blessing. So yeah. if, if you see yourself as someone who aspires to be successful, a key component of success is failure full stop. The next thing, and this is what you need to be focused on, is how to learn to mourn and move on. And what I see happens to a lot of my friends, and I don't know much about you, but I'm going to speculate. You've recognized a lot of success at an early age that your trajectory has mostly been up to the right. A lot of men, when they face their first kind of big professional disappointment, they get stuck. They yeah. can't, it just fucks with them so much, their self-esteem, their, they, they get paralyzed by it. And two, three, four years later, I actually have a lot of friends in the hedge fund business this has happened to. They're masters of the universe. They're making a shit ton of money. I mean, literally millions of dollars. You know, the, the credit crisis comes and the market moves against them. They lose their assets under management. They close their fund down. And three years later, they're not doing anything. And they still can't yeah. get past this failure. And I'm like, my God, if I, I'm not, you know, I'm smart, but I don't think I'm that much smarter than the average bear. I, I'm a good entrepreneur. I don't think I'm a great entrepreneur. What I've had and what I would want to leak to you is I've had the ability to mourn and move on. I'm upset. Mm -hmm. I beat myself up, kick the dog, twist the legs off my Barbie doll, whatever it is you do. And then I start something else. And eventually if you start enough shit and you're, you know, a decent person and you work hard, the moon's and the winds line up. Because when I look at my yeah. biggest victories and my biggest failures, the things that determine the failures from the winners were mostly not my fault. I, when I sold my last analytics company for eight times revenue and just killed it, it was kind of the mark. Everything just lined up behind me. The moon's just lined up. And then in other instances where I got beamed in the face, you know, it kind of wasn't my fault. I, you know, yeah, it just wasn't. It's so easy. Red Envelope could have just, we almost got bought for a billion dollars in the late 90s, right? And right. I, was, I was literally looking at golf streams. And for a variety of reasons, we didn't end up selling. And through a variety of, you know, good luck, bad luck, chapter 11, 2008. And a lot of it isn't your fault. So one, when you kill it, you need to be humble and realize a lot of it isn't your, your fault. And two, when you fail, you got to forgive yourself and just move on. But I would say for someone in your position, the absolute only piece of advice I'd give you is to figure out a way to mourn and move on. To what extent, though, do you think that that inability to pick up and move on is tied to the exact conversation that we started with, which is this notion of masculinity and men being defined by doing? And as soon as you take that away from these people, they're lost, like they're truly lost. And, and it sounds sacrilege to try to compare the young men who are suffering with mm -hmm. a lack of coherent masculinity and role models to millionaire hedge funds who basically get their yachts you know, taken away. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a threat through those conversations. And then secondly, I'm very curious to know, um, I think your point is right, which is compassion is a zero sum game, but I also imagine there's a lot of people who, who look at Scott Galloway as, as a rich white man and be like, shut the fuck up. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I, I think it's important, going back to the conversation about compassion, is knowing that you struggle as well, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's very easy to look at a person like you and be like, you have nothing to complain about. Mm -hmm. Shut up. Um, but you are a human. And I think people mm -hmm. often lose sight of that. And it's one of the reasons that I think long form content is really important. So we can get into the, the nuance of that as opposed to just tweets and Instagram posts. So in terms of trying to disarticulate, what are the components of people who get stuck 
such that you can begin to address it and get unstuck. I have found the primary reason a lot of my, one of the reasons a lot of my friends have gotten unstuck is one, they've known nothing but success their whole life. They were, you know, on the the prom king, you know, just successful, smartest kid in their class, went to a good school, had some early success. Most entrepreneurs usually had some early success. Um, They gave gave them some confidence, kind of seen as a wonder kid. They're on the cover of magazines and, you know, people are fascinated by them, want to know them. And they don't know what's going on in the business. They just know, oh my gosh, Ronan has started this psychedelic retail, the Williams-Sonoma psychedelic. What a baller, right? You're speaking at conferences and and then when you have what feels like a public failure, it's just, it's just, it's like a giant punch in the gut. And then when you drop to the ground, you just start getting kicked in the balls over and over because there's just constant reminders of the failure and yeah. people call you. And I hate, I used to hate the sympathy I would get. It made me feel just so humiliated and you worry about money. Um, I do. You, are you married with kids or do you have a partner? I, yeah. Married seven year old, three year old boys. Yeah. So when my company failed, uh, Red Envelope, I had two babies at home and it fucks with you. You're like, oh my God, my only reason here at a very base level is to be a provider and protect these kids. And I have failed not only as an entrepreneur, I failed as a father because I'm not protecting them. And you know what? That's kind of bullshit. The reality is your kids are going to be fine. You're going to figure it out. And But you're just so, you become, at least with me, I become so self-loathing. And people telling you to appreciate your blessings, it kind of doesn't help. I know I'm blessed. I still go into a very dark place a lot. And t- someone telling me, stop it, you're blessed, it doesn't help. But the more pedestrian reason why I think I've noticed people get stuck is they have exactly the wrong amount of money. And that is they have enough money that they don't have to do anything right away, but they don't have enough money to like just live large without working. So mm-hmm. they, they're caught in this no man's land. I, I, to a certain extent, I was sort of blessed. I had two kids. I needed money. And so yeah. it was like, okay, figure out a way to do more consulting, up my teaching level, get faculty housing, because I got two babies at home, and start another business pronto and figure out what that shit is going to be and how it's going to work. Because I don't have time to wait. I don't have the money to wait for the perfect thing. And a lot of my friends who've kind of gone sideways for 5, 10, 15 years, they have enough money such that their bar around the next thing is never cleared. They recognize success, so they're very picky around what they want to do next. They don't have it. They don't have to. They still have enough money to pay their rent. So they don't have the sense of urgency to get started, and their bar is too high. And what I tell people is, Whatever the next thing is, even if it's even if that doesn't end up being the next thing, at least start doing shit. You know, find a friend that started a business that can help out. Do some consulting. Um, you know, take a job, whatever it might be. Um, start talking to friends about raising money for a new business, whatever it is. But a lot of my friends were like, they got some money in the bank. They don't have a gun to their head. And yeah. I think part of the reason that I was able to kind of always move on. It's like, I didn't have a whole lot of choice. I, I, I was always, I, there was a few times in my life where I was very wealthy on paper and I've always been pretty good about living below my means so I could invest and save, but I wasn't going to touch that. But I just didn't have any choice. I was living in New York with two kids. Um, my partner had taken time off from Goldman and was junior there. So, you know, for to take care of the kids. And it's like, Okay, I got two kids. I need a three bedroom in New York. My rent is 18 grand a month. Yeah. It's like, I got, I mean, I got to get out there again. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of whatever the next thing is, just get onto it as quickly as possible, even if it doesn't end up being um, the right thing. And then, you know, some of the, the feelings around masculinity, yeah, that really, fu- it's not, it doesn't help because our, our identity is so tied. You know, both both genders have a curse. And that is women are largely judged on first and foremost their looks, and then they're expected to have it all below that. They're expected to be have a career, be kind, you know, be be a good person. I mean, they're just they're literally expected to have it all. Guys, yeah. it's much simpler but harsher. It's all about your professional relevance. 
you can be an asshole, unattractive, but if you're a baller professionally, you're fine. But if your professional life isn't going well, your whole identity is sort of like fucked with. Mm-hmm. And and it's hard to kind of it's hard to kind of get out of that. It just takes a huge, you know, when it comes right down to, I find that men are more fragile uh, emotionally. They're stronger physically. I think it's the same as women. I find they're more fragile um, uh, emotionally and mentally than women. And I don't know if it's because women have kids or are charged with raising kids throughout our histories of species, but they don't, you know, my, my sense is guys tend to dwell on shit and they dwell on it internally. They don't emote, they don't seek help. And it, it can be a downward spiral. And then if you're kind of two or three years out of the, out of the game, it gets harder and harder to get back in. Yeah. On that last note, I think that's fair. You, you know, the teacher I work with, Erwin, talks about how men are performance objects and women are sex objects. Men, and if we're not doing, if we're not productive, we become impotent in, in the most truest sense of the word. And when we're impotent, we're incomplete, right? We're, we don't have what makes us men again, in this construct. And, and you're right. So men, I think, do have, are more fragile in many ways. And, and because our sense of existence or sense of worth disappears if we're not providing or protecting in, in that sense. So I think you're well, completely there, on point. There's some fairly evident and weird data. The moment the, moment the man in the, in, the, in the relationship stops making money or even the woman starts making more money, the likelihood of divorce doubles. The likelihood of right. the use of ED drugs triples. And so for all the talk about the evolved man and the evolved household, the data doesn't bear it out. <laughs> when households come under a huge strain, uh, when and, and some of this might, you know, most of it might just be the lack of self-esteem or the man being unhappy, so he lashes out and makes it. But the reality is there's still pretty, there's some basics. 75% of women cite economic viability as a key component to a mate. It's only one in four men. Men don't really care. And, and a woman can be a successful woman. I mean, she's kind of expected, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. She's kind of expected to do it all, but they can be considered successful and have a place in society if they're wonderful uh, mothers and, and you know maintain the relationships in the household. That's not true of a dude. And for all the talk about, well, some men are staying at home, I get it. And every relationship is different. And sometimes the best thing you can do, I would say that men should take economic responsibility for their household. And sometimes that means getting out of the way of your partner and being more supportive of them because they're better at that money thing than you are. Uh, the reason I was, I've always been able to start businesses is because my partner or my wife at the time made more money than me. And we were right. a partnership. And I think I've been, I like to think I've been hugely supportive of my partner's uh, career and economic ambitions. I've never, I've never been with someone who wasn't working and making money. And I find that it creates balance in the relationship. They have their own money, so they don't feel like they're asking for it. And just personally, I've always been drawn sexually, quite frankly. I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to women who are professionally relevant. That, that, and a lot of men aren't. A lot of men don't care. But you know, we can talk about what society, how society should approach gender. But there's some instinct. You can, you can scream at instinct. You can lecture it. But it doesn't have to listen. And the majority of households still exhibit some healthy and some unhealthy um, gender roles. And it, there's just no getting around it. When a dude isn't doing well, profe- my whole identity is wrapped up in my professional relevance. You know, I, I, have a real, I have just a great relationship with my boys right now. And it's super, it's super rewarding. My relationship with my my partner's awesome. Um, we're just getting along. We appreciate each other. We have great sex. We're enjoying the shit out of raising our kids. We're, you know, loving, enjoying some of the opportunities that some economic security get. It's just awesome. By far the biggest determinant of my mood every day is how my professional life is going that day. By far. And I know rationally, oh, my kids are healthy. That should be everything. That's 99%. Oh, I have a great relationship with my partner. I have wonderful friends. I have, I have people who love me. I have uh, 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 people I love immensely. That should be the whole shooting match. But my mood is, oh, did that article I write get enough retweets and likes? Did I do well on mm-hmm. MSNBC last night? 
how did my stocks do today? That's what drives my mood. And I don't know how to change that. That's how I see my professional relevance. I, the things that determine my mood are one, am I feeling strong? It's very primal. Um, I work out, I, I, I run, I test myself physically and it's fucking with me because at my age, I'm getting weaker every day and it really upsets mm-hmm. me. But right. do I feel strong physically? And am I making, am I relevant and making money? Those are the things that determine my mood that day. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how to snap out of that. I'm not sure I'm ever going to. And I think some of that is a good thing, but I, 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 I don't feel like we have honest conversations around the psychological makeup of men and how to address it when 90% of the field is women. Right. I, I don't think you're, I, I don't think we're going to get to a point in our society where we can really address how to make the school system less biased. The workforce is biased against women. The education industrial complex is biased against boys. There are three and a half per capita times as many female fighter pilots as male kindergarten teachers. And so a boy, especially a boy who's in the, one of the the 40% of households that's headed by a single parent and that that's Latin for its mom, not dad can go through to the age of 17 without a single male role model. No, there's two thirds of 70% of high school teachers are male and it's like 80, 80% in elementary school. So where does a boy find a male role model when he's being raised yeah. by his mother? In addition, what happens at schools? Boys are twice as likely to be suspended on a behavior adjusted basis as a girl, a black boy five times as likely. And who do people, who do teachers relate to and champion? They're going to relate and champion to smaller versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the education system. It is just so incredibly, in my opinion, stacked against boys. Think about who the right student is, the valedictorian, seven of 10 are girls now. Think about who a college wants. It wants the student who's organized, sits still. You know, we all knew that student. They have color-coded tabs in a notebook. They write out the study notes and distribute them for everybody. They go home early. They don't play video games. They study. Okay, we just described a female. And the the antsiness, the aggressiveness, the physicality of boys is just not, it's, oh, let's put them on ADHD drugs. I mean, the, the, the school system is highly biased against men. Once we level the playing field, uh, girls and women blew by boys. And the question is, and the challenge is, how do we maintain that velocity for, for girls and women? Because it's a wonderful thing. More single women-owned homes now than single men. That's a wonderful thing. We've largely closed the wage gap between men and women until they have kids and then it plummets. Single women without kids make more money than single men without kids. Single women with kids make a fraction of what single men with kids make. So there's, there's biases and problems all along the way. But when we talk about the problems facing women or non-whites, we talk about it through the lens of societal problem and what we, need, what we can and should do in terms of investment to fix the problem. When it's an issue facing boys or men, it's a conversation around accountability or what they need to do to improve themselves. Even the, the nomenclature, the conversation, everything is different. When I read the Washington Post article, it actually brought me to tears. And I didn't know why, because in many ways, it's not written about me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did speak to me in, in a lot of ways. And also because, and I think this may speak to you, but growing up, I didn't have a dad. And I have longed for a male role model my entire life um, and never really found one, right? Um, and sort of had to figure it out on my own. Uh, and and I think that's probably what precipitates my interest in this conversation. In many ways, have, have what you described, which is um, beautiful wife, healthy, great kids, but I also fall prey to the same thing that you do, which is I could spend time with them and I love it. But at the end of the day, if that part of me goes off that says you're not doing enough, that will take over everything. And you touched on it potentially being a good thing that, that males take responsibility for the economic affairs of the house. And even if that means getting out of the way, do you think that's a good thing to continue? Like, is, is that the definition of masculinity we want to propagate going forward? Or is this a time that we invite a wholesale re-examination? So um, you and I share that. I, my, my father 
you know, was neither of my parents, they were both pulled out of school in the eighth grade. I'm the first person to graduate from high school on either side of my family. And my dad wasn't very sophisticated. You know, neither was my mother. My dad was a very handsome Scottish guy. Uh, uh, so handsome, strong jawline, Scottish accent, 70s California. And I would say that meant he not only could think with his dick, he could listen to it. And quite frankly, he was just fucking everything. And started his third marriage while he was married to my mom, his second wife. My mom got fed up. We left. And we went from living in like this upper middle class home with a view of the Pacific Ocean and Laguna Niguel in the early 70s to like all of us living in shitty apartments somewhere in the valley or Calabasas. And bottom line is I've never forgiven my father. My father is 92. He's going to be 93 in three weeks. And I have a, a, a good relationship with him, but he's ailing. And what I'll do is I'll go down there every couple months. I pay for his care because I can, and it makes me feel strong and I want to do that. Um, but when my mom got sick, I moved in with her. I mean, there's just like, right. there's just no comparison in the relationships. I, the bottom line is I've never forgiven my dad. I feel like he abandoned us. And, and I have a good relationship with him now. And I try to see the upside. I think every parent has one box to check, one big box. And that is be better to your kids than your parents were to you. And my dad did that. My dad was abused at a young age. I mean, physically abused by an alcoholic father. So I've, I've learned to kind of forgive him a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he did like, he did try, you know, I don't, was your father involved in your life at all? Or was he out of the picture? And my parents split up when I, I was two, um, around the age of six or seven, there was intermittent involvement. Mm -hmm. Um, but around the age of actually I was seven, it was 1986. He called the house and, uh, he was made out to be the bad guy um, in my family. Uh, and so at the age of seven, he called the house and apparently, and I don't recall this, I told him I never want to see him again or mm -hmm. hear from him again. And I hung up the phone and to his credit or discredit, I don't know. Um, I never saw or heard from him again. And you still uh, haven't heard from him or saw him again. He passed away about seven or eight years ago, but I didn't hear from him uh, from then. So in my view, and I'm being to be judgmental, your father failed as a man. Because right. when a seven-year-old tells you that, you say, I understand. And then you call him the next day. And you call him every day till he returns your call. I mean, right. think about think about if you and your wife hit a rough patch, a lot of people got divorced, and your kids told you that, or would you, you wouldn't give up. I mean, you just wouldn't. No. Your, your father failed as a Your father failed as not only as a father, he failed as a man. And, um, you know, my dad, I was much more fortunate than that. My dad didn't know how, but he, but he tried, you know. If he was in Chicago on business, he'd call me and try and get me to Chicago and take me to museums. And he didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't know how to be affectionate, but we'd be at a hockey game and they'd score a goal and he'd mess up my hair. That was kind of his way of saying that he loved me, right? Back so in the good tried. old days when you had hair. Yeah, back when I had a lot of hair. I had actually a ponytail in college. Um, so I'm, I, as I've gotten older, you like, you think, okay, you try and forgive people. But that is what you just identified. Losing a male role model is the single point of failure that you can reverse engineer to when boys and men come off the tracks. And it sounds like I was more fortunate than you. I had male role models pop up in strange places in my life. My mom had several boyfriends that stayed kind of in contact with me. And I, you know, weird thing. I, my, her boyfriend gave me 200 bucks and said, go to one of those fancy brokerages in Westwood Village and buy some stock. And I walked into Westwood, went to Merrill Lynch, sat in the lobby. No, no one ignored me. I got self-conscious. I was 13, walked across the street to Dean Witter. I had $200 in a cellophane envelope. And this guy named Cy Cero came out, this young, you know, 30-year-old broker at Morgan Stanley Dean Winter. And he took me back to his office and he gave me an hour-long lesson in the markets. And mm -hmm. every day, and I've written about this story, every day for two or three years, I used to go to the middle of Emerson Junior High School where there was a payphone booth and I'd have my two dimes every day. And I'd call him and he'd tell me how my 16 shares of Columbia Pictures were doing. And he would try and relate it to the market. He'd say, the stock is down. Casey's shadow is a bomb. The stock is up because close encounters of the third kind is a hit. And that means they're going to make more money. They're going to have more profits. And when a company has more profits, more people want to own the stock. And he taught me about the markets. And I've made really good money uh, starting and selling companies. But the reason that I've gotten like economic security in all caps is because from a really early age, I was buying and selling stocks and I just love the market. I just love the market. And just having kind of occasionally these male role models who are kind and smart and strong 
I think had a big impact on me. The other thing that really changed my life was at the age of 17, well, A, UCLA let me in when they shouldn't have. It was a 76% admissions rate. I got rejected and they let me in on appeal, but I joined a fraternity. And I would suggest, I would encourage any young man or young woman to join a fraternity or a sorority. And they get a lot of deserved shit and scrutiny for reckless behavior. But I think it's a fantastic thing for a young man or woman because it takes a very big, unfriendly place, a university, 30,000 people at UCLA, and it shrinks it down to 100, 100 people. And they, you know, they're called brothers. I didn't have any siblings. Never, you know, my dad was gone. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I'm living with 100 you know, young men. And you get what's called a big brother. They assign it. It sounds really stupid, and some of it is. But my big brother, within like a week, is like, Scott, you're smoking, you're smoking too much dope. Stop. He told me to right. drop. I was taking four classes my first quarter. And he said, no, drop, go down to three. Drop the hardest class because you, you need to get good grades your first, some, your first quarter just to get that confidence. I mean, little pieces of advice. When I was acting like an asshole, you get called out. When you're living with 100 men, there's no hiding anything. And they, you know, they give you a lot of shit. And... Um, and, you know, whether it's like coming home after a workout and not showering, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, I mean, whatever you, you there's literally no movement without, uh, one of your brothers reminding you what a fucking idiot you are. And that was really good for me. So I had, I've always been really fortunate to have, um, you know, more, you know, more men in my life. The other, I just want to circle back to getting on a little bit unstuck. You're not supposed to ask for help as a man. It indicates weakness. And if I'm, you know, what I did, I would immediately start calling people and say, hey, should we start a business, right? I mean, you're an impressive guy. Should you be coaching specialty retail companies? Should you be calling Michael Pollan and saying, hey, is there something we can do together? Or, you know, your, your hardest thing is not what to do, it's what not to do, but you've got to make the calls and say, you know, field trip shut down, I'm looking for my next gig, let's get together and talk about my next gig or what, you know, you hear of anything, let me know. Because, you know, people want, to help talented people or they want to be involved with them. They want to start businesses with them. They want to invest with them. But there's this thing around, you never want to come across as, I mean, let's think about it the other night and this is some virtue signaling. Whenever I'm out, I pay. If I'm with a group of people at dinner, I'm always the first to put my credit card down and sometimes I'll find a way and I'll pay. And it's not, I like to think it's because I'm a generous person, but I don't think that's really it. I think it's because it's control and masculinity for me. I was so self-conscious about not having money growing up and not having any money until I was in my 30s, student loan debt, just whatever, starting businesses. I was kind of like broke. That I hate the idea of ever owing anybody and I want to express strength and a certain amount of power over people. I don't know what it is. And I was with, I was with my partner and she said to me, she's like, stop that. People, people you know, people want to just like split the bill. It's okay. People don't. You know, you, you, it's like you're almost like a, trying to assert your dominance over people to stop that shit. And that, again, is this masculinity coming out. And it's hard when you think of yourself as an alpha male to call people and say, yeah, this failed. Can you help me figure out my next thing? And maybe you don't say it as directly as that, but that's effectively what you're saying. It's like, I got to find the next thing. Do you want to brainstorm about this? We want to talk about couch everything in our success that, oh, you know, it went through restructuring. It got sold. The employees are doing well. And I decided I, my real passion, you know, you start spinning everything. I have so many, I have a lot of men in my life that you would never know anything has, bad has ever happened to them. Everything is a right. giant fucking win, right? And it's so obvious that they're full of shit, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm everything, they couch everything is like, I, this is a win for me and check me out everything, no matter how, oh, you know, my, I got fired, but because that's because I walked out of there and, you know, and I was super ethical and I've already had 45 offers and it's like, oh, you got fired. Right. That's what, I mean, let's be honest. That's what happened. You got fired. And yeah. this thing in your head around never admitting defeat or expressing weakness or reflecting weakness, it's. I, you know, I think it's, I think it affects anyone with a big ego, but it's really ground zero is when you mix a big ego with traditional kind of masculinity around, okay, if I admit weakness, I'm vulnerable. Uh, so I think a lot of it is just, you know, the truth has a nice ring to it. Yeah. I'm looking for my next gig. Do you want to get together? Yep. I appreciate the advice. Lots of things I want to touch on. Last year, actually, I invited you to come. I don't know if you remember, but we went down to Costa Rica um, uh, for the documentary. 
And in one of the experiences, was, which was with Mescaline, with uh, San Pedro, uh, I had this realization, and, and it's still a very powerful realization because I'm, I'm five foot nine, I'm 145 pounds at the best of times usually, so I'm not a big guy. And I realized that because of various events, which I don't mean to belabor here, in my life, I've never felt strong. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like a small person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always over-indexed on over-competing, always trying harder, always mm-hmm. being the person who worked harder, ran farther, did more, never gave up because that was my way of compensating. But the other piece that came out of it as I started to tug on that thread coming out of the mescaline session was a realization that I didn't trust men, you Hmm. know, starting from my dad and onward to being in middle school and being the small guy and getting picked on and all that kind of stuff. And, And so it was a powerful realization just to air it being like, oh shit, I don't trust men. So even if I had a role model, I'm not sure I would have accepted a role model. The other piece of it is it's like, yes, it, it is a huge, huge challenge for me to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, I've now started focusing on, on consulting as a potential option. And one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of male entrepreneurs need emotional support. Mm-hmm. You know, they just need to be told they're doing good enough because you have a board, you have investors, all of them are supportive, but they all have their own agenda. And, mm-hmm. the, and there's no one there who is just an absolute cheerleader mm-hmm. for the CEO who's doing everything and, and trying to make it work. And, and it's incredibly uh, interesting to see how people respond to it. What I pitch them on is the emotional support. Yes, I can offer you business strategy and I'll bring that to the equation. And yes, I can coach you in a way to help you try and make yourself more productive. But at the end of the day, just having a cheerleader, mm-hmm. a person to sort of stand beside you and, mm-hmm. and say you're doing great, uh, it really interestingly resonates with people right now. And so I'm trying to dive deep on, on, on that right now. And that's my, my personal exploration. Um, and, and part of my personal exploration as well is how I define success, mm-hmm. which is, yes, you know, it, it's probably in my nature to pick myself up and find the next thing from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. But do I want that or do I want to take the next couple of years? Uh, my wife doesn't work presently, but she's you know getting certified as a psychedelic coach uh, to just spend time with my kids. Mm-hmm. And it feels incredibly uncomfortable, but that's part of the exploration I'm going through right now. And I'm, I'm curious to know, it sounds like you have similar opportunity right now. And, and it, does that appeal to you or do you just kind of accept who you are and, and be like, no, it's, it's still that thing that that definition of success. And when it doesn't hit that day, it still hits my mood. So much there. And I want to take them in order. So psychedelics. Sure. I'm, I love alcohol and drugs. And um, uh, I've drank way too much my whole life. I'm fairly, fairly, uh, I'm actually very fit. My sleep is good. My nutrition is pretty good because someone else is cooking for me. And I eat it. I try and eat at home a lot, which I find is really healthy. Yeah. Um, where I fall down is alcohol intake. Uh, I, I just love alcohol. I'm a, and not only that, as Winston Churchill said, I've gotten more out of alcohol than it's gotten out of me. I'm a better version of me, a little fucked up. It's helped. It's strengthened my relationships. Sometimes I write when I'm, a, I, have, I have a few cocktails and I write and I have an easier time writing about my emotions when, I, when I've had a couple of drinks, which probably is the definition right. of an alcoholic. Um, but I drink too much and it hasn't gotten in the way of my life. But whenever I, I go for a physical, I'm like, all right, let's cut to the chase. Everything's great except my alcohol intake. And the problem is I, um, I'm never sloppy. So if, if I know I have some friends in my life who they have two drinks and they're sloppy and it's like somebody weighs in and says, boss, you just can't drink. You're just somewhere about your biology. I go out, I can have six or eight makers and ginger and I'm fine. And that's the problem is I need to drink too much to get at that point of euphoria. So when I add it all up, I'm drinking a half a bottle of makers every week. That's just no way that's not terrible for you. And especially as you get older. And so I started pivoting a little bit to edibles where I would have some mushroom chocolate or a THC edible when I wanted to go out. And then I would have one or two drinks. And I had sort of that same euphoria or that same high, if you will, and much less punishing, you know, the Mm -hmm. following day. Um, I primarily just alcohol and THC. I've done X a few times, but other than that, I haven't really done drugs. I haven't done psychedelics. And my reticence, and we talked about this around psychedelics, or I got a trip. And I have people in my life that I trust who are like, it was life-changing for me. I mean, just life-changing. And I've had mm-hmm. very few people say it was a bad experience. They say there's components of it that can be bad, but on the whole, it was just good to groundbreaking. The, the issue I have is that 
as someone who struggles with what I call mild depression, mostly driven by anger, I'm in a really good place. And, and whatever shit is there, I have managed to lock away in a box yeah. and I don't want to open the box. You know, it's like, I don't know if I need to examine my life right now because whatever, whatever lack of self-awareness I have, it's working. And so right. I've always been worried. The thing that scared the shit out of me was the guy, and I, I, I won't use his name, but I imagine you'd be comfortable, CEO of a pretty, you know, successful firm. And his job is just to tell people to do these guided trips. It's like it changes right. life. You know, I, and the way he describes it is your life is ocean. You can kind of see down, you go down with a regulator, you explore a little bit. He's like, imagine if you could drain the ocean and just walk around and see everything clearly in your life. And I thought, yeah. wow, that sounds pretty good. And then Sam Harris talks about his guided trips as saying, I'll leak the way you can describe it as immense gratitude. And I'm like, wow, that sounds pretty nice. But my, my former friend, or not former, but the first friend I was discuss, uh, discussing said that he came out of his guided trip and he went home and it was made, and he said to his wife, we should wait till the kids are out of the house and we should get divorced. We're the wrong people for each other. And he said it as yeah. if it was like a liberating thing. I don't want to come to that conclusion. I don't, I don't want to have realizations where I decide to make big alterations to my life because maybe I'm not running at a 10 right now, but I'm running at a solid eight or a nine. So I've always been reticent about it. The, but I am at some point, I keep saying this to you, and I am at some point going to do it. I like the idea of it. I mean, I'd like to do it in a place called Costa Rica because it sounds like more fun and more interesting than being in a room somewhere in a store or what feels like a, a clinic. For sure. But I also like the idea of being in a clinical setting where there are highly trained people that I can sue if something goes wrong. The, the thing, the next thing you brought up, and we don't talk about this with men, is what I refer to as body dysmorphia. And there's a lot of warranted attention on girls' and women's body dysmorphia. We have this ideal of what a woman's body should be like. In some, they should be anorexic and then go get you know, breast enhancement. That's not healthy. And women, especially on Instagram, have this unrealistic expectation of their, you know, their physical self that's just totally out of line and puts huge pressure on them, leads to eating disorders. Men have body dysmorphia. I've had body dysmorphia my whole life. And... I grew up so, I mean, I was, I'm, I was 6'3", I'm now 6'2", because I'm shrinking, which is really nice as an old man. But I was 6'3", and I was always the tallest kid in my class, one of the tallest, and I was always painfully thin. When I got to college, I was six foot one. I grew two inches my sophomore year, or freshman year, and about 140 pounds. I was real thin. And then um, I started rowing crew. I started eating like crazy. My coach put me on this like, you know, 7,000 calorie a day diet. And I put on over the course of two years, about 30 pounds of good muscle. And all of a sudden, amazing things started happening to me. I was more confident. Women started, you know, were much more interested in me. And so I associate being strong and big with a lot of wonderful things. And as a result, my whole life, I've always felt way too skinny. And no matter how muscular or big I got, I was always like, I'd look in the mirror and go, oh my God, you look anorexic. It's just, I couldn't look at myself. And I look back at pictures when I was in my late 20s and 30s, when I would do a cycle of creatine, I look like a bodybuilder. I look fucking ridiculous. I look stupid. I look like a gym rat. And, and but at that point, I, I would look in the mirror and think, wow, you're too skinny. And I still yeah. have it. I still have body dysmorphia. And, but again... Men don't talk about that. It sounds so weird to say that you're really self-conscious about your physical space and who you are. And, but I think about that a lot. And, but, but men don't really talk about it. We talk about it a lot for women, and I think it's a bigger issue for women. But men don't talk about their body dysmorphia issues. And one of the things I always say, you know, I, I try and manage my, I can tell when I'm going dark, if I will. That's what I call it. Like I'm going to a bad place in my head. And one of the first things I do is I try and work out every day and I try and sweat. I find sweating kind of resets the operating system. Mm -hmm. And I'm generally just a much happier version of myself when I feel fit. I don't even think I look different. Um, it's all in my head. But you just feel stronger and feel better. And uh, But it doesn't matter. I'm 6'2". I'm 6'2", and I have a good voice. And supposedly those are the only two things you need to attract mates. And I still am wildly insecure about my, my physical presence. I don't, hmm. you know, I, I've always struggled with it. And I always say to 
not always, but I say to men, especially under the age of 30, we talk about how beautiful the female form is and it's beautiful and we're obsessed with it. I'm obsessed. But the male form when you're young is just incredible. The shit I used to be able to do, I was an athlete in college. I was so fucking strong and fast. And what I'd say to young men is, you're just going to look back on this era when you're in your 20s and 30s of how strong you can be, how fast, how agile, and just lean into it because it's a, just a gift. And my recommendation is have the aspiration that you could walk in any room and if shit got real, you could kill and eat everybody or outrun them. Uh, one or the other. And I just think that gives you so much more confidence, kindness. When, the guys that break up fights at bars are always like strong, big guys because they're like, yeah. they don't have anything to prove. They're confident in their strengths and their masculinity. It's guys who feel shitty about themselves that get into fights at bars. And so I think being physically fit, strong, running long distances, lifting heavy weights in the gym and in your mind is really important. It has been a huge key component for me in terms of my own mental well-being. But yeah, I, I, I think, again, body dysmorphia, another thing that Mendo talk openly about, about their insecurities around the body. Um, I played my first game of pickleball yesterday, and I am feeling sore today. So I but, understand that feeling of how good you have it when you're young uh, and how much it hurts when you're older. Um, I'll, I'll end on this question, which is, Right now, the conversation we're having and, and exactly the, the line you said about like kill, eat, whatever it was when you're in a bar, it's like, why is that? I, I understand from a lexicon perspective that that can be masculine, but why are we talking about that in the context of men? Why isn't that equally as relevant for any woman out there who wants to to be that? And I think that's probably the crux of a lot of this conversation about where it gets confused because we conflate masculine with male, but there's actually no reason that masculine traits have to be attached to a man or necessarily should be. It could be very just individual. I think that's exactly right. And it's a correct point. And that is the first thing to have a more productive conversation is to articulate and acknowledge that masculinity is a societal construct. We get to decide what it means. Um, I think you also have to root in biology and instinct and be realistic about what it means. But also it's not the providence solely of people born as men. There's a lot of women that demonstrate wonderful masculinity. I am drawn, mm -hmm. my closest friends are very feminine. I am drawn to men who are more nurturing. And our relationship mm -hmm. is I'm the frat bro, you know, irreverent dick. And they're these caring, loving men. I'm literally, I, I, I'm my, kind of my close friend. I go visit him in Montauk and I walk in and he has like food ready for me and he puts a candle in my room. I mean, it's literally like my girlfriend. And I'm drawn, I'm drawn to feminine men. And so, but understanding we acknowledge and accept the wonderful traits of femininity, nurturing, more nurturing, more graceful, more thoughtful, more loving. But we don't acknowledge some of the wonderful things about being masculine, risk aggressive, more prone to action, um, being strong. But uh, when I, you know, I work out at CrossFit, and the thing I like about CrossFit is there's a lot of women there and they're generally lesbian firefighters and we like lean into it we're like oh my god right. these women are so fucking strong and it's so wonderful and they get huge reward so masculinity is something that i think people born as men who have testosterone kind of flow through their system or are gonna ha are gonna have an easier time leaning into those things and i don't think there's any and i think you should embrace those things and just define what it means to be you know i come down to like three things uh protector I think men, the, the ultimate form of masculinity is protecting people. You protect yourself, you become self-reliant, you become strong, you become economically viable. You protect your family, you protect your friends. And then the real expression of masculinity is you protect people you're never going to be. Plant trees, the shade of which you'll never sit under. The next is provider. Start from a place of thinking I've got to be the economic powerhouse here. And again, sometimes that's my wife's a baller. I'm going to be more supportive of her. And that's part of being a protector is I know so many men that are so fucked up. They're not good at what they do and they want their wife home barefoot and pregnant. It's like, have you noticed your wife is much better at making money than you? I mean, part of being a man is maybe acknowledging that and getting out of the way and being more supportive. And then the third thing is procreator. And that, that causes a ton of, you know, people get their hair on fire. And that is, I think the most rewarding thing in life 
is to have, to find a deep and meaningful relationship and to have kids with that person. And I find it generally speaking, not always that the male needs to be the initiator of romantic interest. And I would like, I would like all boys and maybe all girls in high school to press part of health class, have some coaching around what does it mean to approach somebody rest romantic interest while making them feel safe. You know, I, I walked into the Raleigh hotel and they had this pool party every Sunday where there was a DJ and I saw a woman that I was so attracted to, right? And I went and approached her. I, I promised myself, I am going to speak to this woman before I leave this pool. It would have been so easy to make excuses. She was sitting with another girl, or excuse me, another woman, another guy. It would have been so easy to just be like, bomb out of there or not, or, or wait too long. And then they'd leave. And I'm like, no, in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to walk over there and I'm going to open. And to open under the sun of the midday without the aid of alcohol is not easy, right? Especially when people are, you know, wearing no clothes. And fast forward five years later, you know, our middle, our, our son's middle name is Raleigh. And right. I, I, I think most women will say that they want males to initiate contact, to be bold. And if you initiate contact and the person isn't receptive to it, guess what? You're both going to be fine. You're both going to be fine. And I think we've told young men that if you initiate some sort of romantic interest, that it makes you a predator. No, it doesn't. You be kind. You don't harass people. You try and find easy exits if they clearly don't reciprocate your interest. But if you talk to most couples, you'll find that one or both of them were not initially interested. And there was a certain level of persistence and that person got to know someone at work or got to know them through friends and started developing an attraction for them. But I think men... I think it's okay to be the one who's more bold and initiates contact in a thoughtful way that makes that person feel safe. I think we're supposed to initiate friendships and initiate uh, romantic relationships. And mine was very primal. I wasn't looking at this woman and saying, I want to build a beautiful life with her. I was looking at her and I think, I would really like to have sex with this woman. I mean, that's the bottom okay. line. That's what I was thinking. And then we started hanging out, really developed a deep affection for each other. And over the last 20 years, have built a really nice life together. And it all came from the fact that I'm like, I've got to go speak to this woman and risk rejection. Because here's the thing. The most wonderful things in life are a function of taking uncomfortable risks. You took an uncomfortable risk with a business, you'll take more. When it works, it's enormously rewarding. And if you want to score above your weight class in terms of mating, someone who higher character, more attractive, whatever it is, kinder than you, Get ready for rejection. Get ready for rejection. Because for every person that you might end up with in a, in a romantic relationship, there's going to be five or 10, or in my case, 20 women don't reciprocate your interest. And that's okay. You're both going to be fine. You don't harass them. You're not kind. You don't be disrespectful if they're not interested. But young men have lost those skills. And show me someone a lot of those skills, the ability to endure rejection, the ability to be kind, the ability to open, the ability to get someone's attention, to be funny, whatever it might be, be a little persistent. Guess what? Those are some of the key skills to being successful professionally. So I force my boys every day when we're out, I tell them they have to speak to a stranger. I don't tell <laughs> them they have to hit on another 11-year-old girl. I don't say that. You have to speak to a stranger. And my 12-year-old now hates it and will sit out the front of our, you know, our, front of our house I'm like, just go ask them what dog breed it is, anything. But I do think people need, all young people need to start initiating more contact with people in person and random encounters. Nothing wonderful is going to happen to you unless you take an uncomfortable risk. And the analog version of anything digital is far better. Meeting people in person is far better than meeting them online. A victory in person, celebrating, watching sports together in person. It's just a lot more fun. Going to Vegas versus online gambling. The analog version of everything, best the digital every time. A hundred percent. And I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Scott, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your vulnerability and openness. I think that's a huge part of the conversation about what modern mature masculinity looks like. And uh, I think you're doing an excellent job advocating for it. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ron. And you're one of those guys, when I saw the request, you're an automatic yes. I think you're an, an impressive person. I hope we develop a friendship and I, I just enjoy, I'm just a fan of yours. I appreciate that. That really means a lot. Thank you so much. 
Have a wonderful afternoon in Colorado and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Ronan. Thanks, buddy. Yep. Got it. <clears throat> awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.